This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. With the U.S. Federal Reserve raising its benchmark interest rate for the first time in nearly a decade, 2016 is shaping up to be a pivotal year for the financial services industry. Richard Ramsden, who covers banks not named Goldman Sachs for our research division, is here to discuss the state of the industry today and what to watch for in the year ahead. Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Richard, there's a lot of talk right now about the future of finance. The industry is facing increased competition from newcomers in the field, intense regulatory pressure over the last several years, and a shift in Fed policy. In the wake of that shift in policy and these new competitive pressures, how would you characterize the state of the banking industry today? The banking industry over the last five or six years has, has gone through some of the most profound changes that I think we've seen in, in more than 50 years. And I think in the wake of what happened in 2008, there was a lot of regulation that was put in place, and the banks have really been adopting to that over the last five or six years. If you look at the banking industry today, I think it's fair to say that it's never been more stable relative to at any point over the last 30 or 40 years. And a few interesting metrics that I think stand out, if you look at the amount of capital in the banking industry, it's more than doubled since 2008. This is in the U.S. In the U.S., yep. But but capital levels across banking industries around the world have gone up. If you look at the amount of liquidity, so just the amount of cash that the banks have sitting on their balance sheets, it's more than tripled. And if you look at the types of loan portfolios that banks hold today, they look quite different to 10 years ago in that they tend to be much more prime in nature. They tend to be skewed towards either investment-grade corporates or higher net worth type individuals. So you've seen a lot of changes in the composition of bank balance sheets, and I think that's put them on a much more stable footing. The biggest issue the banks have been dealing with over the last five years has been a lack of growth. So if you look at revenues in the banking industry, they're pretty much declined every year since 2009. Is that partly a function of all that stability and cautiousness and conservative approach to the balance sheet? That's 100% right. So I think what's happened is you've increased the amount of capital, you've reduced the amount of risk, and that has come really at the expense of revenues and revenue growth. But that's also been compounded by the fact that interest rates have been close to zero for the best part of the last seven years. At the most simple level, the way that a bank makes money is they take deposits from someone like you, they pay you something for those deposits, and then they go out and lend those deposits to someone else. So what's happened as interest rates have gone down is they have paid you less on your deposits, but as they have gone out and invested those deposits, either in loans or in other securities, the yield on those securities or loans have come down dramatically. So over the last six or seven years, the amount of interest income that the banks generate has dropped by almost a third. So that's put a lot of pressure on the revenues and on the profitability of the banking industry. Goldman Sachs Research just hosted its annual financial services conference here in New York. There were representatives from 70 of the most prominent firms in the industry, including all the major banks. What did you hear about the operating environment that they're expecting for next year, especially in the backdrop of this slight increase in the interest rate? So that was a very big theme of the conference. And I think almost every bank that presented said that we are starting to see an improvement both in confidence levels, both among small businesses, but also consumers, but also activity levels. So I think a few interesting things that stood out. One of the banks said, if you look at payments that they see across their platform, and keep in mind, banks have a really good pulse of the economy because they see all the spending that's taking place on credit cards and on debit cards. They said that, look, if you adjust for the fact that consumers are spending less on 
gas today because gas prices are lower. Consumer spending is up somewhere between five and five and a half percent relative to where we were a year ago. Especially given that that's a major component of a services economy like the US. It's hugely important. And I think, look, the surprise to a lot of people over the last few years has been that the economy has been improving gradually, but consumer spending and consumer lending, the willingness for consumers to borrow, has really been a lot lower than you would have anticipated. There's been real risk aversion amongst consumers. I mean, just to give you one number that I think is interesting, if you look at the amount of cash that is sitting in consumer checking accounts, it is 75 to 100% higher than where it was in 2007. So consumers are sitting on a lot more cash. They have the lowest level of leverage in their balance sheet that you've seen in 15 years. And despite the fact that there's been this huge windfall effect from lower, lower, lower oil prices, prices yeah. you know, their propensity to go out and spend that has actually been quite low. Very slow, yeah. The good news is that that does seem to be changing. You are starting to see consumer lending pick up. You are starting to see consumer spending pick up. And in turn, I think that is going to be an important engine of growth for the U.S. economy going into next year. In a way, we saw the same cycle on the corporate side. Mm -hmm. Three years after the crisis, corporates had really rejiggered their balance sheets much safer. And people were wondering, where's the activity? And then the last year and a half, we've really seen corporates get a little more aggressive, take on risk, look at growth. And by and large, they've said, well, the only thing holding us back is this lack of consumer spending. So you could see a more virtuous cycle. I think that's exactly right. And I think what's interesting is you initially saw a pickup in larger corporate activity, but small business activity really took a long time to pick up. And Mm -hmm. again, I think what stood out this year is that, especially over the last six months, you've seen a real pickup in small business lending and small business activity. When you ask the banks, look, why is that happening? I think it's happening because a lot of smaller companies have put off CapEx decisions or investment decisions for a long period of time because they have been concerned about the environment, but it's getting to the point where they cannot delay those decisions any further, i.e., you know, the truck they have is falling you know, apart, falling apart yeah. you know, or they have no option other than to expand the amount of manufacturing capacity they have because demand is starting to pick up. That, I think, is a very good sign. So at the conference and in the wake of the Fed's decision, a lot of investors and executives have moved from worrying about whether the Fed will tighten, how quickly it will yeah. tighten, and what the pace is. Mm-hmm. What's at stake for the banks there, and how are they thinking about the, the yeah. velocity of the Fed's increase in rates? You know, so changing interest rates has a dramatic impact on both revenues for banks, but also for a whole bunch of other risk metrics. So at the simplest level, again, as interest rates start to go up, banks who have all this excess cash can invest that cash at a higher yield. Now, interest rates have just gone up 25 or 50 basis points. Rather than getting zero on your cash, you're now getting 25 or 50 basis points. And it doesn't cost you anything more to do that. In addition, you've got a whole bunch of loans that sit on your balance sheet that price off prime rates or LIBOR rates. And as interest rates go up, those just reprice automatically. So you will start to see margins expand. You will start to see some revenue growth, and that's obviously going to help the industry. Now, there's a couple of things that hurt the industry. The first is, as interest rates go up, loans become more expensive, which in turn makes it, at the margin, more expensive for borrowers to repay or service that debt. So there is a risk that as interest rates start to go up, that you start to see bad debts on loans creep up from very, very low levels. And secondly, as interest rates go up, the cost of borrowing is going to go up as well, which in turn could impact loan demand. So you could, at the margin, see corporates opt to either use cash 
or optimize the way that they run their business so that they don't incur those higher borrowing costs. So loan demand could be negatively impacted. Especially since a lot of the bigger corporates have refinanced at yeah. these rates as far yeah. out as they could. Yeah, I think look, the, the obvious place to look at is going to be what happens to the mortgage market. So you've had a massive refinance wave within mortgages. Borrowing costs on a 30-year mortgage have been at all-time lows. As interest rates start to go up, there is going to be an impact on the cost of borrowing for mortgages. And is that going to impact the housing market in some way? Richard, you talked a little bit about the impact of lower gas prices on the American consumer and the economy, and that we're beginning to see upticks in consumer spending from that windfall. But let's look at the lower commodity prices overall. What's the impact of commodity prices coming down as dramatically as they have on the financial sector as a whole, but also particularly banks? As we've talked about, the impact on consumers is positive. I mean, the windfall effect from lower energy prices has been really very significant in terms of the amount that it's added to net disposable income for consumers. On the corporate side, obviously companies which are directly exposed to energy are starting to see increased levels of stress. I mean, the oil price is down over 60% over the last year. That's had a real impact on the revenues of these companies, and they obviously haven't been able to reduce expenses to offset that decline. Now, as a result of that, we are starting to see some stresses in energy portfolios. So we're starting to see a mild pickup in bad debt. So that's companies that cannot repay the debt that they've taken on. And we've also started to see banks start to reserve against the probability of bad debts continuing to rise. The reality, though, is that the bank's exposure to energy directly is quite small. The average bank in the U.S. has less than 2% of their loan portfolio directly exposed to energy companies, which means that 98% is exposed to other industries, many of which are frankly benefiting from lower energy prices in the form of lower input prices. Another spot of weakness around the world has been emerging markets, and the prospect of rising U.S. rates is really a negative cycle for a lot of emerging markets, along with lower commodity prices. How are banks responding to that, particularly those big multinational banks that operate in emerging markets? Yeah, so I mean, most banks in the U.S. are actually domestic. 90% plus of revenues that the U.S. banking industry generates actually come from within the U.S. You do have a few banks which have got exposures overseas in some of the emerging markets. And what we've seen over the last few years is that some of those markets have got a lot more difficult. So Brazil is obviously going through a very protracted and a very deep downturn. Russia, because they are very energy dependent, has also started to go through a recession and in turn, that has slowed growth in those regions. In turn, I think that has impacted the revenue growth for some of those banks, and it has impacted credit quality. But those exposures tend to be pretty small in the overall context of those banks. Let's talk about technology. Banks have always had to adapt because they're consumer-facing businesses, and consumers are using new technology. How do you see that playing out over the next several years, and how do you see banks adapting to the changes in how people live and use technology? The reality is that technology has played a very important role in the banking industry for the last 50 years. If you just take a trip down memory lane, in the early 1980s, you know, when ATM technology was introduced, everybody thought that that was going to be the death of a bank teller. In actual fact, over a period of 10 years, even though the number of ATMs in the U.S. banking industry went through the roof, the number of tellers only declined marginally. Then in the late 1990s, everybody was very focused on the internet. Everybody thought that the internet was going to put a lot of banks out of business. The banks were actually very early adopters of internet technology. They incorporated it into their offering that they gave to their clients. 
and it very soon just became another distribution channel. It didn't really put a lot of banks out of business. More recently, there's been a lot more focus on mobile type technologies. And Again, I the th- banks are adapting very quickly. Th- they're adapting very quickly. And I actually think the banks have been very surprised at the take up in terms of some of the mobile technologies. One interesting stat, for those of you who bank at some of the larger institutions, you can now take a picture of a check and deposit it remotely without having to go to the branch. That technology was only introduced in 2010. Roughly 60% now of checks are deposited remotely through people taking a picture of them on their, on their iPhone and depositing them without having to go to a branch. I mean, that type of ramp is historically unprecedented. Now, in turn, what that is doing is it is allowing banks to go back and rationalize some of their fixed cost distribution networks. So you are, for the first time in history, seeing a decline in the number of branches, a decline in the number of ATMs. Banks are moving to much smaller branches. Service centers. And service centers. So it really is changing. I I think the way the banks are looking at this is is win-win. It is allowing them to lower their costs, which in turn allows them to give a better deal to consumers and corporates. But frankly, I think consumers really prefer this technology. It's a lot more efficient. And in many cases, it's a lot more secure because of things like fingerprint technology. So the banks have a very strong incentive to adopt this technology. The new wave of ATM machines that will be rolled out will have a whole range of kind of know your client technologies embedded into it, whether it's iris scanning or fingerprint type technologies, which again will allow the bank to do higher value transactions with you without you being physically present because their confidence that the person that you claim to be being the person that you actually are is just that much higher. Let's talk specifically about blockchain technology. As many of our listeners will know, blockchain has its origins in Bitcoin, the digital currency, but many people in the banking industry and outside are focused on un-Bitcoining blockchain, using it as a new way to increase systemic stability and add real-time transparency to many financial transactions. Proponents think it could revolutionize that part of the industry. How do you see that playing out? I think blockchain potentially could be one of the more important technologies the banking industry adopts over the next few years. And uh, as you talked about, blockchain is something that came out of Bitcoin. One of the issues the banking industry has had over the last few years has been the time it takes to settle a transaction is a lot longer than I think people would like. I'll give you an example of this. If we as a firm enter into a dollar-yen transaction with a client, they're selling dollars and they're buying yen, That transaction takes roughly 19 hours to effectively settle. So everyone doesn't get paid for 19 hours. Now, why is that? So the speed of execution is de minimis, but the actually settling time can take as long as a day. The transaction is instantaneous, but it takes 19 hours for everybody to get their cash because of time differences and because of other frictions. Blockchain technology potentially offers the ability to settle that transaction instantaneously which means that you enter into the transaction and you clear the transaction within seconds. And I think that is a very, very valuable technology, both for clients, but also for the banking industry, because what it means is that they're not at risk for 19 hours. I mean, for those 19 hours, there is the potential that... Yeah, a spike in the rates or divergence in the rates could end up leaving the banks holding the costs. Yeah, so that technology could really improve the efficiency for banks, as well as improve the customer experience. And I think the banks are investing a lot of time and money in understanding that technology, and they are very keen to adopt it. One of the things you have to realize, though, the bar for the industry to adopt new technologies is very high. The banking industry is unique in one respect, which is that 
you cannot be right 99.99% of the time. You need to be right 100% of the time, just because of the number of transactions that are processed and the value of those transactions. So these types of technologies typically only get adopted once you can really prove that they're robust, that they're secure, and they're gonna do what you think they're gonna do without any unintended consequences. But I do think it's an area you'll hear a lot more about over the next three or four years. So all this talk about startups and disruptive technology, you think the banks are gonna mostly stay ahead of those curves? It depends which part of the value chain you look at. So you're seeing disruption in the banking industry really on two fronts. The first is you've got this whole proliferation of online lending platforms. So these are companies which are really cutting the bank out and going straight to either consumers or corporates and offering them either a better deal on credit or offering them credit in cases where the banks just are not willing to step in because it doesn't meet their risk profile. Uh, and that's and, always been around, and to that's be always fair, been around. right? It's yeah. just, been, just been the delivery of that yeah. sort of higher risk spending has yeah. been done through other mechanisms. Yes, that isn't particularly new. There's been intense competition on the lending side for many, many years. I think the banks know how to deal with that. I think where there is more concern is some of the innovation on the payment side. I think there's been a lot of frustration over the years as to why does it take so long to transfer money? If I want to transfer you $100, I hit send at my bank and it takes two or three days for that to show up with you. Why is that not instantaneous? And you are seeing some of these new technologies allow you to send money instantaneously to people who do not bank with the same bank. The banks are looking at those technologies very closely, and I do think they have a very strong incentive to either adopt them or replicate them because there really is a value proposition there. And how about lending? I mean, banks have lent money to people, consumers. They've also uh, had credit card businesses where they're essentially financing, again, individuals and small businesses. A lot of people aiming at that space, too, and sometimes with the idea of delivering it cheaper or in a way that's more familiar to a younger generation. Yeah, and again, I think the way it's being delivered is new, and some of the technologies are definitely a lot better than you know, what existed 10 years ago. But that type of competition for a bank is something that they have had to contend with for the last 30 or 40 years. It's just the mechanism of delivery has changed. What's important to keep in mind is that some of these companies are targeting borrowers that historically have not been that attractive to the banking industry because they just don't fit their risk profile. So what's interesting is that you're starting to see some joint ventures between banks and some of these online lending platforms. And again, I think the way the bank is looking at this is win-win. Some of these firms actually do have better technology platforms, but we have access to a lot more clients than they do. So why don't we embed their offering into the whole suite of things that we go out and offer to our clients? And if there is a client that wants to borrow money that doesn't meet our risk profile, but it meets one of the online lenders' profile, then everybody wins from that. Right. So a lot of activity in the space. You sound reasonably optimistic about the growth of consumer spending, which should be good for the banks and the ability of banks to capture um, a little bit higher margins as rates rise. What are your big expectations for the industry in the year ahead? And will um, 2016 be a year where investors in banks finally see some growth? I think the answer is you will see growth in 2016. So just the mechanics of interest rates going up is going to add something between 5 to 10% to the earnings power of these banks. Second, we are starting to see loan growth pick up after eight years of it being very, very weak, which in turn, I think, will help to drive some growth in bank balance sheets. And third, we are expecting that credit losses are going to remain relatively low 
just because unemployment is just so benign. I mean, we are expecting unemployment in the U.S. will breach the 5% number on the way down. Unemployment historically has been the single largest driver of banks losing money on their loan portfolios. That's continuing to improve. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on December 17, 2015. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.